Good morning. Merry Christmas. So good to see you. Um, if you brought a Bible, please turn to our gospel reading this morning, Matthew chapter 2. And let's see together who exactly it is that those of us who call ourselves Christians, those of us who are Christians, what is all this hoopla about? Um, what is this season for? And let's start by noticing the question that these traveling wise men ask. They ask in verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So do you hear the claim that these wise men are making? Right, it's right there. They're making two claims, right? One, that a king is in the manger. And two, that this king is God. Where is the king? We've come to worship him. These wise men, they're not looking for some cute, harmless, eight pounds, six ounces, if you're a student of pop culture, baby in fleece diapers. They believe that this baby is God. And that as God, he's king. So when they looked into that manger, they saw something that's mind-boggling. Hard to wrap your mind around. That God is taken on flesh, has been born, is a baby, and that this God is king. He's king of the whole cosmos. This child that Herod is raging against in vain. This child that Herod does not wish to reign in Israel is the king of the universe. He, he reigns everywhere. He's the one and only true God. Now look, this is the heart of Christianity. And so if you have doubts about this, Please, whatever you do, don't stuff them. Don't ignore them. Don't deny them. Don't be embarrassed about them. You, you should explore them. Don't get caught up in some trap that, well, how can I let people know I'm not really sure I believe this? I lead a small group. Or I'm a parent and I've got children. If I let them know I struggle with this, somehow it's going to rock their faith. Those are really deadly traps. You need to face into these doubts because this is the very heart of it. And doubt doesn't scare God. And, and doubt doesn't make you inappropriate in this room or in this group of people. It doesn't matter who you are. If you struggle to, to believe this, to have confidence in this, then turn toward that struggle. Come to me, come to any of our pastors or any, any of the leaders in the church and just name it. And let's see what it looks like to, to face our doubts. Let's see what it looks like to investigate. Look, if this is true, it should be verifiable. It would be really rude of God to put at the heart of Christianity something that is not verifiable. I mean, that would not be a very nice God. I give you a brain, 
oh, you can't use that when it comes to the most important thing. No. God's not afraid of your doubts, and your doubts are not a threat to faith. For most people, they're actually the pathway into faith. So who is this Jesus in the manger? Well, he's God, and he's the king. But that's not all there is to him. Look what else we see in this chapter. It's interesting. In, in the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter, something occurs that's easy to look over. In, in chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel, right there at the beginning, it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, Bethlehem, back in the day, not today, but back in the day, was obscure and insignificant and so small, it didn't show up on any of the maps. It wasn't even a dot on the maps. Now, that's how the, it begins. He's born in this place that most people hadn't heard of. Now, look at the end of the chapter, the last verse, verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Again, Nazareth was really insignificant. It was obscure. In fact, to call someone a Nazarene was slang. It was derogatory. It's sort of like if you live in a big city and you call somebody a hillbilly. Or if you live on one of the coasts and you call somebody a hick. The word Nazarene meant backwoods. It meant doesn't really know how to count or something like that. So Matthew begins and ends the story of Jesus' birth by pointing out that he was born in obscurity and he grew up in obscurity. And, and one more thing about this. It's interesting that in verse 2, Jesus is referred to as the king of the Jews. But then in verse 3, Herod is referred to as the king of the Jews. So you could read Matthew chapter 2 as like this dueling kings. But what happens after verse 3 is that Jesus is no longer referred to as king. He's referred to instead as the child. And Herod keeps getting referred to as king. What Matthew is doing in both this kind of literary move, both with framing the whole story, born in obscurity, grew up in obscurity, and then setting Jesus up as king, but he quickly kind of gets demoted to the child. What Matthew is doing in both of those moves is he's, right at the beginning of his gospel, he's bringing up a theme that plays out through the whole gospel. Jesus is not an ordinary king. He is a lowly king. He is a meek king. He's a humble king. Even in his birth, his title gets demoted to Herod being the king. This becomes a major theme in Matthew's gospel. Jesus, the humble, lowly servant of God. We, in fact, in chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says about himself, take my Yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, does anybody have this verse memorized? Gentle and lowly in heart. And then in chapter 21, verse 4, we're told about Jesus, Behold, your king is coming to you humble 
and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. When Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem just before he's killed, he doesn't ride in on a white stallion. That's what Herod would have done. He rides in on a donkey, the animal of a servant. You see, over against all the sentimentalized baby in a manger stuff that our culture presents at Christmas, Christianity says that baby is God and he's the king. And over against the triumphalism of so much of American muscular evangelical, evangelicals, this passage says he is a lowly king. He is a meek king. He is an obscure king. Now let's back up for just a moment. When we read Matthew's gospel, it's helpful to recognize that he wrote this gospel something like between 50 and 80 years after Jesus was born. And he's writing this gospel, it seems, for a cluster of Christian communities, churches, located in modern-day Syria. And he's encouraging these early Christians, by the way he tells the story of Jesus' birth, he's encouraging them to live by the conviction that since Jesus was born in obscurity and grew up in obscurity and carried out his ministry as a lowly, humble, meek servant of God and went to his death as a lowly, humble, meek servant. Matthew is encouraging these Christians that he's writing this gospel for, and through this gospel, God is calling us to pursue meekness. He's written it into the literary nature. He's calling us, like Paul did in Philippians, to have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited, leveraged. But instead, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, really a slave. You see, Matthew is doing through a story what Paul said to us through a poem in Philippians. Pursue meekness. Pursue obscurity. Pursue lowliness and forgiveness. Would this be a good goal for you for 2024? What, what would it look like if those of you struggling with doubt in 2024 turned full on into facing them? And what would it look like if you brought them out into the light and you said to your small group, you said to your friends, I really don't have a big confidence in all of this. This is hard for me. And what would it look like for us to make this our prayer? Lord, teach me this year how to be meek. Shine the light of your spirit on all the places in my life where I choose power when I should be humble. Show me all the places in my life where I'm not seeking obscurity. Instead, I'm seeking glory. Show me how it is precisely that the move toward domination plays out in my life. And help me this year 
to grow inch by inch more and more meek. You know where this is hard for me? It's hard as a boss. People work for me. And it's hard as a father. It's so hard in parenting and in supervising people to find what it means to be meek. It's so easy to shift out of that posture and to leverage my position. But the Christ himself says, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be exploited, to be leveraged. Instead, he surrendered. He emptied himself. What about you? Let's each one now do what I just did. I publicly confessed. Let's start over here. (laughs) But for real, not not out loud, not now. I mean, just maybe later to your friend. Would it be good for you to do what I've done this week and to reflect on where am I struggling with this? Would it be good for you to make this into a prayer for your own life? A few chapters further in Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is teaching in his most famous sermon ever, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall, anybody know? Inherit the earth. See, meekness boils down to that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the path downward is the only path upward? Do you really believe that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and that because of that move, God exalted him and gave him a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, all would confess, right? Do you believe that the meek will inherit the earth? Now, I like a good action movie, like about half of you in the room, the other half look down on us. But the cool half, you know, what a good action. The problem with action movies is they don't believe this though, right? And the problem with those of us who like to watch them is that when we watch them, are we catching the moves that we're making in our own heart where we're believing them? Meekness boils down to do you believe that the way to get what you want is to wait for God to make all things new? Or do you grab it yourself? This is where push comes to shove. Christ is king, yes, but he is the lowly king. Do you really believe that the way God set about saving the world is the way God wants you to live your life in the world? Do you believe it's going to work? This is one of Matthew's most distinctive features. It's this sharp contrast between the humility and meekness shown by Jesus in his birth and throughout his lifetime over against the powerful glory of his future coming as judge. In Matthew's gospel, there's this emphatic difference between the humility of of the earthly life of Jesus and the glory and power of his future coming as judge. And for a Christian, there are so many moments in life that just boil down to the question, do you believe that or not? 
And if you really believe that Jesus is coming back and that the meek will inherit the earth and those who have been treated unjustly, those who have been harmed and hurt, they will be vindicated. Then you don't have to vindicate yourself. You don't have to always be right. You don't have to always win. If you believe that, that God will judge, that every injustice will be vindicated, then meekness is an act of believing that. Because in that moment, when you're faced with the choice of dominating someone or waiting patiently, if you believe that when God comes back, he will win the day. And when God wins the day, it's not going to be like a football game with two opposing teams facing each other. No, when God shows up on the field, the other team is going to crumble. And if we believe that, we can seek obscurity. But if we don't believe that, then incarnation, we better change the world. Because it depends on us. Now, there's one more thing we can see when we look at the Christmas story this morning. Not just that Jesus is God and he's king and that he is showing us how to live our lives in meekness. One more thing, and, and this is something that comes up in all four of the passages we've, we've heard this morning. Psalm 72, Isaiah 60, Matthew chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 3. And it's this, when we look with the Magi into the manger... We see the meek and lowly king. But when we look with Jesus out of the manger at the magi, we see that Jesus is not only the meek and lowly king, he's the king of all nations and all people. This theme has been there all along. I mean, we read it in Psalm 72, verse 9. May desert tribes bow down before him. Verse 10, may the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Verse 11, may all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Verse 15, long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. And then in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together. Verse 5, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Verse 6, a multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Verse 7, all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. Verse 9, the coastlands shall hope for you. The ships of Tarshish, those were the slave ships. The ships of Tarshish shall bring you your children back from afar. Their silver and gold with them. This king has the power to convert a slave ship into a rescue ship. This king has the power for the glory of the nations to gather around him. This was just a little hors d'oeuvre, these couple of dudes who showed up from the east. This was just letting us know what's about to roll down the hill. In Matthew chapter 2, it's not just what we see in the manger, it's what we're, it's, it's who is seeing what's in the manger. Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jesus. And I love how the Christmas hymn we sing jams that up into Isaiah's prophecy and converts the wise men into kings. It's right. 
the kings are gathering. The Magi, they come from the east. They represent the nations outside of Israel who come to worship Christ as their king. Now, one, let me nerd out for just a moment. Just stay with me. We're almost there. Ephesians chapter 3. Remember, God promised his son as a light to the world. And Matthew describes Jesus in the manger as the beginning of the fulfillment of that prophecy. But notice how Ephesians chapter 3 handles the relationship of Jesus and all the nations. Verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this is Paul, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. That's the non-Israelites. That's the nations. To preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. The church. The church of the incarnation. The church of Harrisonburg. We are a sign to the world that Jesus is for the whole world. That when the dust settles, there will be one king. This beautiful, meek, lowly king for all the nations. We are the church. We have been called from darkness to light. And now through us, through this thing called the church, God is making known his manifold wisdom to the nations. Those magi from the east, that was just the tip of the iceberg. Christ, the lowly king for all nations and all peoples. The Jesus in the manger, surrounded by the magi. He is the lowly king of the nations. What a strange way to save the world. Let's be a lowly church for Harrisonburg. Let's pray.